So today in our study of Acts, we come to Paul's famous message given on Mars Hill in Athens. In an article written by Justin Bass that was published just a couple of weeks ago, he points out some fascinating parallels between the life of Socrates and Luke's account of Paul in Athens here in Acts 17. In the first place, Paul's teaching style would have reminded Greek readers of of Socrates' way of engaging others, his dialectic, where he would ask penetrating questions in discussion with someone else, and in that conversational exchange, in the refinement that happened there, his hope was that truth would ultimately be discovered. As we already know from walking through the last few weeks, Paul's been reasoning and persuading and debating not just those in the synagogue, but here in the marketplace as well. And this was the noted practice of Socrates. He would walk through the marketplace from very early in the morning and engage anyone who would listen to him. And he would stay late into the afternoon to do so. In addition to this, Nearly identical charges were brought against Paul in Athens that were brought against Socrates 400 years prior, charges that ultimately led to his execution. As we'll read in just a moment, the Athenians said of Paul, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign deities. The philosopher Plato declared of Socrates, he is guilty of rejecting the gods of the state and of bringing in strange deities. In our passage, Paul addresses the council with these words. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's reminiscent of Socrates' famous address to the council when he said, Men of Athens, I love and respect you, but I shall obey God rather than you. When confronted by others with the idea that he might be the wisest man on earth. Socrates thought about it. Eventually, he conceded that he believed that to be true, not because of what he knew, but because he admitted that he knew nothing. As Bass argues in his article from today's passage, Luke appears to be presenting Paul as a new Socrates, but with this crucial distinction. Paul is a Socrates who knows. John Stott described him in this way. Paul was a kind of Christian Socrates, although with a better gospel than Socrates ever understood. Our passage this morning is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. You remember that last week, Paul was sent away from Berea, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him when he arrives in Athens. Picking up in verse 16 then. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Lord, would you lead us by your spirit now? Help us to see what you want us to see, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, as intriguing as it is to just imagine Paul with his titanic and his sanctified intellect just roaming around the streets of this ancient hub of philosophy and, and culture, just trading ideas with other intellectual giants, as intriguing as it is to consider that, we will miss the point if we don't appreciate how practical Paul's plan is to simply share the gospel with as many people as possible. So let's summarize our focus this morning like this. We need to talk to people about their lives with the hope of sharing biblical truth because their lives depend on it. We need to talk to people about their lives, about their interests and their values, what they believe. We need to talk to them about that 
because we want to have the opportunity to share biblical truth or to point them to Jesus because their eternal lives depend on it. Whoever the person, whatever the details, in whatever context we find ourselves, whether, whether we're talking to an angry academic or whether we're talking to the, the sweet little neighbor kid who lives next door. Our goal, this hope, this focus never changes. So let's walk through our passage this morning with a simple outline. We'll look at Paul's gospel opportunities in verses 16 through 21. We'll focus on his gospel message in verses 22 through 31, and then we'll very briefly look at the responses to his gospel message in verses 32 through 34. And we'll just begin with our first section. Now, Paul's been sent away from Berea. He arrives in Athens, awaiting the arrival of Silas and Timothy. And he makes the most of his opportunity in this historic city. Now, when the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, Greece, it would have been past its prime in terms of its, its political influence, but it was still legendary. In fact, to this very day, it's still legendary in terms of its artwork, sculptures, its architecture, its, its philosophical sophistication, and its fanatical devotion to the gods. About 400 years prior to Paul arriving here in Athens. So around the time that the prophet Malachi was writing his letter on another shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Socrates, then Plato, then Aristotle were roaming the streets of Athens. There were so many idols in this city that one Roman citizen said it was easier to find a god there than a man. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. It was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So you can imagine Paul with all of his great learning just walking around the city and, and, and soaking in it, just kind of taking it in. But what happened to him when he did that is that he was overwhelmed with the idolatry that he saw in Athens. It troubled and it provoked his spirit within him. Now, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go actually with Maryville Christian School and my son Jack to uh, Guatemala on a field trip. And after we had the opportunity to share the gospel with a man who at that very time was sacrificing to Mayan gods. We walked away from there. My son Jack walked up to me and he just started sobbing. That doesn't happen often. 
So I just put my arms around him, and he just kind of put his head on my shoulder, and he, and he, he just cried for probably a minute. And eventually he said, why is he sacrificing to demons? Jack was so provoked in his spirit by the idolatry that we had just experienced face to face. Now, it's important for us not to gloss over how troubled Paul was by what he saw. The language used of Paul here is similar to the language used to describe God's jealousy for the faithfulness of his people and his absolute abhorrence of idolatry. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Isaiah 42, 10. So think about this with me. If God hated Israel's syncretism in the Old Testament, that is worshiping a pagan demon God alongside the one true and living God at the same time. So they're sharing glory among God's people. If God hated that, imagine the holy wrath that is kindled when God observes the Athenians' praise offered to an entire pantheon of gods. Paul's spirit was provoked because the blatant false worship he beheld was robbing God of the glory due his name and due his name alone. So, whether we are overwhelmed by the greatness of the glory that is owed to God and to God alone, or, or whether we are overwhelmed by the goodness of the gospel message, or whether our hearts are broken, just provoked within us because of the condition of our lost family or our lost friends, or our lost neighbors. We need to talk to them about their lives with the hope of sharing biblical truth because their very lives depend upon it. Now, as far as it concerns Paul here, as he usually did, he went into the synagogue and he, he proclaimed Jesus to those who were there on the Sabbath. But what is so captivating about this particular passage? What's so captivating about this scene in Athens is the way Paul engaged with those all around him who were completely ignorant about the scriptures. That's what makes this passage so famous. Notice as we, as we look at our passage, in the first place, Paul is aware of his surroundings. More than that, he's perceptive. In a sense, he kind of has his finger on the pulse of the culture that he is taking in. But then note, how simple his strategy is. As he perceives the, the rampant idolatry all around him, his heart is provoked, and so he takes action. What does he do? He simply begins talking to anybody who will listen about Jesus. 
whoever happens to show up in the marketplace on that day, Paul knows at least one thing about every single person that he sees. He knows that more than they need anything, more than that person needs anything else in all the world, Paul knows that that person needs Jesus. Now, verse 18 says that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also engaged Paul in the marketplace. What's, what's fascinating about that is that those are rival systems. So it's almost as if Luke is telling us, look, look at the broad spectrum of ideas that Paul had to engage with even in the marketplace. Now, the Epicureans considered the gods to be distant. They were uninterested in human affairs. They believed the world came into being by random chance. They didn't believe in an afterlife, so of course there was no day of judgment coming. Not surprisingly then, they were pleasure seekers, not ever having to worry about judgment for their actions. The Stoics, on the other hand, they, they acknowledged a supreme God, though they had some strange views about that, but they believed the world was determined by fate, that people should pursue their duty, not pleasure, and that people should try to live in harmony with nature and reason, and to endure pain calmly, without emotion, to the degree that that was possible. Now, to be clear, neither one of these ideas is even remotely Christian. But this is where we live. Not many of us are going to stand on some hill before a council and preach a message to a bunch of scholars about the greatness of Jesus Christ. But we'll go to the market. We're going to be in conversation with people at Kroger or in our neighborhood or at our schools or wherever we might find ourselves. So, so, so this is where we live. And to be clear, you, you may not understand all the philosophical ideas that a person holds when you meet with them. Not that I think this will probably happen, but if I meet an Epicurean next week or a Stoic, I probably won't even remember what I said about what they believed about things in the sermon, right? But so what do we do? What can we do? We can ask good questions, and we can listen well with the goal of gently dismantling their false views about God or about life or about the world with the hope of replacing that with the biblical truth of the gospel. That's our goal. Now, Paul has to make a huge adjustment here because these philosophers are going to take him to the Areopagus, that is, to Mars Hill. Here he's just in conversation with people in the marketplace, exchanging ideas and talking and all those kinds of things. Now he is going to the most famous place on earth to share what he's thinking. It's not going to be a conversation. It's going to be a proclamation preaching the good news about Jesus. But just, just listen to how condescending those around Paul were. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said, he seems to be a preacher of, of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And Luke tells us, because this is all they used to do, is sit around and talk about the newest ideas. But put yourself in Paul's sandals, as it were. Right? You're going to preach a message to a large group of intellectuals who essentially have no biblical framework. They, they don't understand the scriptures at all. Utterly unfamiliar, likely, with the Old Testament. So, how's that going to work? How are you going to share good news about Jesus with this group of people who have no background in redemptive history? Your terminology will mean nothing to them. Look, if they haven't heard about Jesus and they haven't heard about the resurrection, those are two key pieces of us typically sharing the good news of the gospel with other people, right? So there's no frame of reference. The question becomes, if you were Paul, where would you start? How would you engage them? Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone? without using a lot of the biblical phrases or what we might respectfully call Christian jargon that we might use with one another. The people who came to the training this weekend on how to talk about Jesus went through an exercise where they had to share their testimony and talk about Jesus without using a lot of the biblical jargon that would be typical for us. How was that? Tough? It's, it can be challenging if you're not used to it. So just try it for a moment. Just think in your mind, if you were sitting across from someone, maybe at Vienna Coffee or wherever, wherever you find yourself, and you're going to try to share the good news with them, but they have no frame of reference. How would you talk about it in a way that didn't immediately put up an obstacle to them because they didn't really understand the nature of what you were saying biblically? Just this past week, I had the privilege of talking to a young man who had just graduated from high school, and he's going through some really difficult challenges in his life. And so we were talking through that, and I asked him, well, do you go to church anywhere or asked him a couple questions about God, and he said, actually surprised me, he said, actually, this is the first time I've ever been inside a church in my life. That was a game changer in terms of our conversation. So we talked about the Lord, and we talked about the gospel, and attempted to do so in a way that highlighted the fact that Life is really hard, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and 
all of us feel that struggle. And we need to find comfort and we need to have clarity about what to do. And so we started talking like this, right? But it was, it was, it was fascinating to me that the moment he told me that he had never been in church before, I immediately became hyper aware of how he might be perceiving my language, which made for a just a great brief conversation, and my hope is that he and I will have some more opportunities to talk going forward. Now, if you are intrigued by that idea but think, boy, I don't know what I would do if I was face-to-face with somebody. In September, we are going to have a class where you'll not only be exposed to a lot of the things that we're talking about today and that we are talking about Uh, in the training over the weekend, but you'll have an opportunity to practice doing the things that we're talking about. So that equipping class will be during the Sunday school hour in September, and I would encourage you to jump in with that. The reason that's so important is because if you have the opportunity to share the good news about Jesus with someone, you need to be clear. Because as we have already said, their very lives may depend on on it. We trust fully in the sovereignty of God, but we also want to be as clear as possible because that is the best way to love our neighbors who need to know God. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now note that Paul begins not by taking a text of Scripture and expositing it, but by finding a point of agreement with his listeners, something that was common to both Paul and those he was addressing. I perceive in every way that you're religious. And then he gives a frame of reference. I observed an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And it's this common fact that becomes the launching point for his gospel message. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now that's bold. And that's brilliant. And that's on point. The reason this is so bold, think about it with me, is that Paul is talking to the Athenians who, who loved knowledge to the degree that it was a massive idol for them. He is taking their open acknowledgement of ignorance and worship, and he's emphasizing not their devotion to worship but their ignorance. And he seizes this opportunity to tell them the good news. So, just allow your soul to be overwhelmed for a moment this morning by the reality that this God, whom the Athenians paid tribute to as an unknown God, the reality is they're probably just hedging their bets. They probably were thinking there's got to be another God out there that we've overlooked and we don't want to offend them. But nonetheless, Paul seizes brilliantly on this opportunity. Think about it with me. 
They pay tribute to an unknown God. But that God not only desires to be known, but he can be known by us. Not only that, but he, 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 this God, has taken the initiative to make himself known to us. Do you want to know what this God is like? Walk outside and behold the beauty and the majesty of creation. Do you want to know about this God? Then take up and read about the greatness of his glory and his redemptive plan about sending his son to earth to save you from your sins. But this isn't even the clearest way that God has made himself known. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke. So let's be clear on that. God spoke. God revealed himself. He took the initiative to be known. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that is his son, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So if you want to know what this God is like, look at Jesus. He's exactly like him. Let your soul rejoice this morning that God has made himself known. Rejoice that the fame of his name is being spread among all the nations of the earth, even as we speak. Rejoice, because not only can this God be known by us, this God knows us. We need to talk to people about their lives with the hope of presenting Jesus, God's son to them, because their eternal lives depend on it. But notice here how Paul gets to Jesus. He begins not with special revelation, highlighting the atoning work of Jesus on behalf of sinners, but with general revelation, highlighting the observable world in which both Paul and the Athenians lived. Here's another common point of agreement. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. So in one sentence, with, with one singular truth came, claim, that their unknown God who can be known is the creator of the world, with this one truth claim, Paul refutes not only the mythological gods of the Athenians, but also of several worldviews that were present. In particular, the Epicureans' view that the world was created by random chance. But did you notice something else in verse 24? Not only does Paul proclaim this unknown God as the creator of the world, look at, look at the end of verse 24. And, and picture this playing out. Paul is on the Acropolis, which is a, a citadel or a fortress, among all of these phenomenal temples. And, and he is saying, as he looks at every one of the temples 
where idols are being worshipped, every one of these that are made by wood and stone, he says, this God does not live in temples made by human hands. So there's that as he addresses this council who's in love with all of these temples. Paul is nothing if he is not bold as he's led by the Spirit. Further, this God is not served by human hands as, he, as if he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 25. So, on the one hand, Paul is saying God doesn't need your ritual service or attempts to garner his attention. But on the other hand, God not only created the world, he is actively attending to his creation, sustaining it, and lovingly providing for those he has made. That is completely opposite of the view of God that so many of these scholars had. Paul is just dismantling false views of God here left and right. Now, one of the most important reasons to sit under sound teaching and to be in a community of other believers who can remind you of biblical truths is because false views of God lead to so many worthless activities. And they can even lead to far greater atrocities. I mean, just think about, for the moment, what's happening in Afghanistan. I mean, it's typically not framed this way, but what's happening in Afghanistan with the Taliban is fundamentally a theological issue. Their view of God and what God expects is what is driving all of their behavior. It should be evident on its face that there's a massive difference between the way they, they are viewing God and the way we as Christians view God. False views of God either lead to worthless activity or absolutely catastrophic consequences. Now, the Taliban is low-hanging fruit as it results, you know, as it relates to this issue. So we need not to gloss over it too quickly. Let's think about it as it relates to our own views and, and what's going on in our own hearts. If we ourselves are knowingly harboring any false views about God, that is, maybe there's some text that you say, man, I, I love this passage. Have you ever said that? I mean, that's obviously a good thing, right? We, we, we do love God's word. And so often it's whatever text we're reading at the time that is our favorite passage, right? But doesn't that also somewhat implicitly infer that there may be other texts that we don't love quite as much? Now, if they deal with really hard issues, in one sense, that's totally understandable. But in another sense, we need to be very careful that we don't have a particular way that we think God should be. And because God reveals himself as differently than that in his word, therefore, we're going to subtly discard that idea and hold on to our idea of what God should be like. That is spiritually 
dangerous. We need to bring all of our personal preferences that we have about God and what he's like and how he works in the world, and we need to weigh them carefully in light of God's revealed word. Doing so might prevent us from venturing into some very dangerous spiritual territory. Now, Paul continues, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, these verses are a little bit tricky to understand what Paul's talking about here, but essentially what he's arguing, I think, is that God has the right to rule over all men because all men and women are ultimately of one race. Now, chapter 17 and verse 26 by itself has the ability to destroy racism. This isn't Paul's main point here, but that verse by itself demolishes the idea, the whole concept of racism, because it says that man is ultimately just one race derived from one man, although with multiple and varied ethnicities. Now, what Paul seems to be focusing upon here is conveying the idea that God sovereignly rules over all people and nations and historical time periods. And he does so in such a way that though they often fumble around in spiritual darkness, as it were, his desire is that he would be found by them. Now, this is an interesting way of, of, of talking about it. And it it might be different than other ways that the Bible talks about it, but remember what's happening here in context. Paul is proclaiming the God to the Athenians who was previously unknown to them. So in a sense, he's holding up, he's holding up a mirror to them and explaining their ignorance without using a whole lot of biblical jargon. He's talking to them in a way that they might understand. Yet he is also saying unequivocally clearly, this God can be and desires to be known by all people. Now, he begins to shift his emphasis in verse 28. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Here's another point of connection. Paul quotes one of the well-known thinkers of the day from Crete to make this particular point. And at the end of verse 28, Paul quotes from one of the famous poets of the day who said, for we indeed are his offspring, speaking of the Lord. So again, what's Paul doing here? He's very shrewdly arguing using their own beliefs and thoughts to expose their faulty thinking. Now, follow Paul's argument here in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What's he saying there? I think he's saying this. If God is the actual father of all mankind, since we're his offspring... And since he is the one who made us, 
since he not only created us and sustains us, provides for us and rules over all of us, then it is ridiculous on its face to worship carved idols and statues as God. These are images that were thought up and actually made by us. You see how backwards that is? Now, the irony is that some of the more sophisticated thinkers of the day may have somewhat agreed with Paul about the fact that crass worship of wood and stone and carved idols that the masses would engage in was probably wrong. They may have just felt like it was beneath them. But what these intellectuals failed to see was that their endless philosophical speculations or their commitments to to shameless pleasure-seeking or or to disciplined ritualistic restraint, or to morally equating knowledge, which they loved, with actual righteousness, which they did not possess. What they failed to see is that their own idols in these areas were probably even more insidious than the carved images. This is where our passage begins to cut very close to home. Anything that any of us loves more than God or or fears more than God or anything we trust in more than God is an idol for us as well. So think about those three things. Which, Which one of those is the most tempting for you? Is there something in your life that you really love? Or or maybe you really struggle with fear. Or there might be something you're trusting in, possibly even more than God. Are these things challenging God for supremacy in your own heart? These would be good things to talk about this week in your, in your small groups or in your growth groups or wherever you find biblical community. Idolatry is deadly. Verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to, present, to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Once you hear the truth, you become accountable for it. Once you hear the truth, you become accountable to it and for it. Now, Paul really has been arguing biblical truths all the way through, but now in this argument, a direct call to action takes center stage. What Paul is doing is he's moving the discussion from philosophical debate to personal responsibility. Now that you've heard the truth, you have a decision to make. You'll put your faith and trust in it. You'll oppose it. Or you'll ignore it. 
In essence, what Paul is doing is he's declaring that since God is knowable, and since you have just been told about him, so think about everything that we've set up to this point as it relates to what God is, uh, Paul is saying about God. Since you've been just told about him and are therefore accountable to the truth, let me be exceedingly clear. God is your creator, sustainer, sovereign ruler, father, and Athenians, he is your judge. A day is coming and a man has been selected to judge the living and the dead, not according to what, not according to what you might speculate about what is right and good or that you think will happen. But Paul is saying according to what God has declared to be right and good. And what God has declared will most assuredly happen. Now, the reason we know this for a fact is because God raised this man from the dead. So Paul's challenge to them is this. Before this day comes, that is before this day of judgment comes, repent and turn to the one true and living God. For previously he was unknown to you, but that is true no longer because he just told them about him. Now, at this point in the book of Acts, the three responses are just predictable. Some are so entrenched in their belief system, they oppose the message just by, just by mocking it, just having fun with Paul. Some find the message intriguing, but they don't put their faith and trust in it. And at least some, though, believed in the truth. This is the whole reason Paul was there, to proclaim the good news with the hope that some would believe. And indeed, we find that record here. Some believed, including Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. Now, one day, it's going to be super joyful to talk to them about what happened on this day. Now, the scene at the Areopagus on Mars Hill it highlights the devastating consequences of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is this. When we substitute ourselves or anything else into the place only God deserves, it robs him of glory. Therefore, it is the most offensive form of ignorance and evil imaginable. But something else that this passage highlights is the glory of the gospel. When we substitute ourselves in the place of God, it is evil. But when God substitutes his own son into the place we deserve in order to bear the punishment for our sin, it is the greatest expression of humility and compassion and love that the world has ever seen. Now, Socrates himself could not have fully understood this reality, but the new and wiser Socrates, the apostle Paul, he certainly understood it. This is the reality that compelled him to share the good news about Jesus with anyone who would listen. May that be true of us also. Let us be ready to talk to people about their lives with the hope of sharing biblical truth, with pointing them to Jesus because their very lives depend on it. And may this be done to the glory of the Father for the sake of his 
blessed Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, would you continue to lead us as we worship this morning? I pray that even now you would give us an overwhelming sense of the greatness of who you are and the fact that you and you alone deserve glory. Lord, lead us by your spirit, I pray, as we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.